Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, I'm glad to see you today. Yeah. Are you glad to be seen? Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, some of you are sleep depraved, deprived, whatever word that would be. Um, some of our, our gang with a 24-hour musical that got pulled off here. So, uh, some of you were here, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understood they had a great time. I was, I wasn't present, but um, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I'm <laughs> the staffers know that I live with this uh, fear that you know everything broke last night. I don't know what that's, you know, is. And you come in and, but they always take wonderful care of everything and, and usually leave it in better shape than they find it. And, um, and you know, they have our sound team work. So it's all good. It's just, you know, it's one of those play. Did you know that the devil messes with me? Okay, just want to make sure you knew that. Um, so pray, please, regularly. Um, yeah, uh, certainly. I am glad you're here. Hey, if you're here as a guest of ours for the very, very first time, guess what? We have a gift for you. We do. I'm not going to give it to you right now. Um, but we have one, our connection team, as soon as the service is over, they'll be heading back to the connection center, which is in our atrium, which is right down that hallway there. Well, you can get there through that hallway too, but right down that hallway, you go into the big glass atrium area where the couches and all are, um, it'll be to your left. And they'll be there with a gift. They want to greet you warmly, get to, to know a little bit more about you. And, um, but we're glad you're here. We're glad everybody's here. Um, has anybody heard anybody say, or maybe you've said yourself, how come we had to go back, you know, to two services? Why couldn't we just do to one service? Did, did, did some of y'all say that? I see, you know, um, well, I, d- there, there are many, many, many reasons, but I just want to give you one, just one, and then you can start figuring some of the rest of them out. If, if we went back to one service, then are the people who are providing care and discipleship for your kids would not have had a worship experience earlier to go to. What I'm saying is there are a lot of moving parts around around here. Y'all okay with around here? There are a lot of moving parts around here and um, that's one of them. We have groups that meet now and we're meeting in the first. So it's, it's just, it's one of those things. But here's what everybody said. Man, it was so great to have the place packed and man, people singing to the tops of their lungs. And well, guess what? Here's, here's the, the plan for, for fixing that. Okay? Why don't we just fill up both services? I'm just thinking's all. You know, just possibility. And the way that that would happen is if we all just started extending invitations more frequently to people that we know where we live, work, and play. Just say, hey, come. Come, come join me for worship one day. Just try it out. They, they give a, they, they'll give you a really cool free gift. You know, bribe them. You know, take them to lunch afterward, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it, it was great. Probably nobody enjoyed it more than those who end up up here do. Uh, but there's, there's still the work of, of making disciples across all the age spectrums here that, uh, that has to be done. And, and that happens, yes, some in here, but mostly in our groups. And so I want to encourage you to make sure that you're a part of, uh, of group life uh, here at the river. Now, we're in, a, in our summer series that we've entitled Collide, and we've been exploring 
eyewitness reports and encounters by people, kind of very, very different people, vastly different people that had these encounters with Jesus. And we've seen what happens when their hurts and their hang-ups, their, their habits, their worldviews kind of collide with the grace and the truth of Jesus. We, we looked at the collision of, of a disciple's doubts. We looked at what happens when a blind man's desperation encounters the grace of Jesus. We, we've seen what happened when a despised and discarded woman encounters Jesus and brings her discouragement to him. Now this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what happens when somebody who comes to Jesus in kind of their sanctimonious self-assurance. They think they got it going on and we're going to see what happens when that kind of life collides with the grace and truth of Jesus. And we're going to spend most of our time in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Um, and I want you to get, be captured by this. Everything that we're going to look at really today comes out of an unexpected answer that Jesus gives to a question that nobody asked. Jesus just does that. We're going to see how Jesus, he, he has this incredible way of just blowing up everybody's expectations. He, he never does what he's supposed to do, you know. It's really kind of what eventually led to him being killed, uh, murdered by religious people who didn't like that he wouldn't do what they thought he should do. Now, the big idea, I want to go ahead and give you kind of the big idea uh, of what we're going to be looking at today because it's found in verse 7. And so I want to go ahead and give you that idea. In verse 7, uh, Jesus says, do not marvel. Do not be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't, don't go, oh my, I didn't know. Don't, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And we're going to be looking at the man that Jesus said this to, this guy named Nicodemus. And we would know absolutely nothing at all about Nicodemus if it wasn't for the gospel writer John. John introduces us to him in, in, in this third chapter that we're going to look at today. But we also see Nicodemus showing up again later in John chapter 7. You may want to go read this later on the day. In John chapter 7, verses 40 through 50, Nicodemus kind of comes to bring... We'll call it legal aid. He, he kind of comes to the defense of Jesus when a crowd of Pharisees have kind of decided, we're going to take him on. We're going to take him out. Well, Nicodemus wins kind of a legal defense and saying, brothers, think about this. Even at, to, to his own character being assaulted. And then later on, at the end of John's account of the gospel, nearing the end, we see G, uh, Nicodemus showing up once again. And he is at the burial of Jesus. He has gone with Joseph of Arimathea to claim the body from Pilate, the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. And they're rushing to get him ready for uh, burial before the Sabbath comes that evening uh, on that Friday that Jesus was killed. And Nicodemus is there. And so we see this kind of movement and this, this uh, if you want to call it evolution of this, this man's relationship with Jesus. But here in chapter 3, I, I want you to begin being captured by a couple of realities, if you would, uh, uh, about Nicodemus. Because I think Nicodemus, and this is just, you know, Joe Think here. I think Nicodemus represents two kinds of people. Uh, in, in our world. The first is people who have opinions about God. Anybody got an opinion about God? D does anybody out there have an opinion about anything? Yeah I, I, I figured you did. You know everybody has an opinion about God. 
And so Nicodemus shows up and he brings his opinions about God to Jesus, which is kind of interesting um, because he, he doesn't mind sharing his thoughts with Jesus about w what God is. Even kind of letting Jesus know, I don't think you're actually right about that. Now, I mean, if you can just imagine the audacity of, of him telling Jesus, I, you know, just wasn't a, a really bright move. Now, I, I dare say that most of you in this room have very definite ideas about God. And my guess is there's a possibility that there, even among us, there may be some who are, are pre-Christian. You haven't trusted Jesus with your life yet, but you still probably have very strong uh, opinions uh, about God. From time to time, we have people uh, in our services who, whose opinions about God are strong. And not only are they very strong about God, but they're strong about the church. Because you don't, you don't think God, the real God, would have anything to do with what you consider to be organized religion. And I meet people from time to time who have very strong, outspoken opinions about God. And one of the things I love to do is sit down over coffee and, and let them talk. I, I, I actually enjoy hearing what they have to say. I like to be able to share with them what I understand about God through my relationship with Jesus, but I, I don't mind receiving and hearing what, what they had to say. I remember um, not very, very long ago, one of the things I do is from time to time I look as I'm preparing messages or studying and um, I, I come across like YouTube videos and recently I was watching a, a YouTube video of, a, of an encounter that happened a while back. Um, there was this, this Christian pastor and there was a panel kind of thing. It was supposed to be like kind of an interview but it turned into a debate between this Christian pastor and this guy by the name of Deepak Chopra. You know who he is? Yeah, he's, he's what um, some people refer to, you know, Oprah, some people think is America's pastor. I, I don't know where that came from. I didn't make it up. It just, I've heard it. Um, anyway, he's her spiritual advisor, or at least one of the, the, the prominent ones. And, and what was happening is this, this pastor was basically declaring truth that Jesus is the only way to God. And Chopra just kept challenging him and basically saying, you can't say that. That is a primitive view of God. You can't, you can't declare that. And it just struck me, here's this guy, he's got, he's got a strong opinion about God. And he thinks his is the right one, and this pastor's is the wrong one. Because we all have strong opinions about God. And that's, that's one kind of person that Nicodemus represents. Another kind of person that I think Nicodemus represents is kind of your, you know, your really... Uh, above average, let's say, religious person. And, and really, when it, when it came to religion, uh, Nicodemus was, he, we would think of him as first string varsity. Okay? That's, he, th this guy, he, he, he kind of had it going on. He was just at, at, at the top of his game. You know? They, they called him a Pharisee. You know, that was a title that he had. And, and Pharisees, as many of you know, they took like morality and, and religion rituals to a, to a whole new level. You know, they had, they had 613 other commands, not just the Ten Commandments and the teachings of the first five books of the Old Testament, but they added like 613 and then there was some fine print uh, about each of those. And there were kind of two big schools of thought um, uh, in that day. And one of the schools of thought were uh, the Shamaites. And the Shamaites, they, they had this teaching, this rule that they had to follow that basically said this. If you remember at dinner time that you forgot to say grace at breakfast, 
You got to go back to wherever you ate that food before it fully digests and, and, and say, say grace. So imagine, okay, let's say that you had breakfast at Perkins, you know, this morning. Went in there and got you one of them great big old fat blueberry muffins, you know, and orange juice and some bacon, man, you know. And you, so you, you're, you're, at, you're at Perkins and you're, you're, you're woofing that down and you, you forget to say grace, you know, and you, you head on about your day. And then just before you sit down for dinner and you're about to say grace, you go, oh my goodness, forgot to bless my, my blueberry muffin. And so you leave your house, you drive back to Perkins, somebody's in your booth, you go over and you say, look, you got to get out of here, I got to sit here because I got to say the blessing. It'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? That's, that's the way they lived. They had rules like, and in fact, they had some fine print about that particular rule and part of that fine print said that the moment a child could actually chew and digest an olive, they were then responsible to say grace too. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, when our kids were little, my son Taylor would choose when or when not he would say grace. You could say, Taylor, you would say grace. He'd say, no. <laughs> well, most of the time he did. But sometimes he'd just say, no. You know? And he was big enough to eat olive, you know? So I don't know what the deal was with that boy. But, you know, there, there are these, these rules kinds of things that they, they follow that just almost, almost made no sense. But they, they, were, they had them. They, had, they, they were trying to keep them all. And they had these rules and these rituals, these ceremonies they go through. And, and this is the man that comes and stands before Jesus. And these are kind of the two big people ideas that I think he represents. And so he comes to Jesus and, and he's wanting to have this conversation about, about what God's really like. And Jesus gives him an answer that he did not expect to a question he hadn't even got out of his mouth. Let's look at the scenario again. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, you must be born again. Now, what, what we're going to talk about here is this phrase that you have probably heard a lot. But I think in our culture today, it really is one of the most misunderstood phrases in the Bible that gets taken where, way, way out of context. For some people, it conjures up ideas and images of, you know, deep, cathartic, emotional experiences. Maybe, maybe a, an awakening of sorts. How many of you remember the, the, the Clooney movie, Brother, Where Art Thou? Anybody see that, that movie, you know? You know, his brother, you know, shows up at this kind of religious meeting and oh my gosh, he gets kind of, he's not religious at all, but he gets kind of swept up in the emotion of all of it and what happens? He ends up in the river getting baptized. You know, he's just, he, he's gone ballistic here, you know. And, and, and some people think of it that way. They get caught up in, in the emotion. Others, others today, when they hear this born again thing, they think it has something to do with converting to some kind of moral code. Some even think it has something to do with a political platform or party. And they're not excited about being a part of anything like that. One of the things I found a little bit humbling uh, as I was looking through this, pollsters did a poll of, of Americans, and I know, you know, those are always accurate. But anyway, they, they took this poll of Americans a while back and discovered that 70% of Americans say they would not want a born-again Christian as a neighbor. 
Did you realize that you probably diminished property value for people? You know? Here's another statistic that they found. In our nation, there are still about 50% of the population believe that they are born-again Christians. Now, when you put those two numbers together, there's this group in there that kind of falls in the middle of those two things that are born-again people who don't even want to live with themselves. I mean, when you think about it, it's actually what, you know, when you take those two statistics and, and, and put them together. But it's just, it just goes to show you how confusing this statement is in our culture. But please grab hold of this. That phrase was very, very, very important to Jesus. That's why he starts out saying truly, truly. It's kind of, that's kind of like a double blessing, a double amen in the Hebrew language. Some translations use verily, verily. Now here's, here's the way that kind of modern I, I would understand it. Um, my parents called me Joey. I'm, I'm a junior. My dad's Joe Senior. Uh, so they, just to differentiate, they, they call me Joey. But every now and then I would get the, the triple digit. Joe Everett still? I mean, I was toast. It meant what was about to follow was very important and it always got my attention. When you hear truly, truly, when you read that in God's word, Jesus saying that or verily, verily, please, this, understand how important this is to Jesus. And, and in this case, he says, truly, truly, you must be born again. You must. This is not like, you know, optional equipment. This is, you must. Now, I, I don't know what everybody's kind of personal perspective on Jesus is. There are people who think that Jesus, man, he was a great man. Incredible leader. You know, we're talking about the Global Leadership Summit and there's no leader greater than Jesus, people think. And, and, and then there are some who think he was a great teacher and a, and a great philosopher and he flew, influenced Western civilization like nobody else has. And there are other people who, you know, think he was just a rebel, man. He just came against a religious establishment. Others are, believe he's the, the son of God. But here's the deal. Wherever you are kind of in that spectrum, you, you need to come to the place, if you think anything of Jesus, where you pay attention to what he says here. Because in, in very crystal clear language, Jesus says, you must be born again. You, you must. And if you're not, you will never see heaven. So, uh, uh, again, you're staking your entire eternity on what you do with the statement that Jesus makes here. And if you think he's wrong about that, then, you know, if you're okay with thinking that, then, then fine. But you need to pay it careful attention and give it some incredible time to think on and pray on. Because Jesus said, unless... Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I've come to understand this being born again means. And I, uh, one of the things that I think, you know, kind of goes on is regular church people, you know, here's the truth. I think if you really look deeply at this, what it means to be born again today, that one of the things that's going to stir your heart is you're going to think, I know some good people, maybe even some good church going people who may not be in heaven. 
who may not step in there. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to awaken you to what Jesus meant here. And so I want us to walk through this together. I want us to go back to, to verse 1. Verse 1 t- tells us this, that there was this man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. And what that tells us real quickly about this man is two things. He was religious and he was successful. He was religious and successful. And from his vantage point, he, he had it going on. He thought he had the approval of God and the approval of people. He thought he was the best of the best. But then you get to verse 2, and the Bible tells us that this man came to Jesus by night. Now, what's the significance of that? Why why is that detail put in there? You go online, you can read all kinds of things. Some people said it was because he was ashamed. Some people said he was afraid that the other Pharisees would find out he was going. Some people said that, you know, I I think that he knew Jesus was busy during the day, so he found a downtime to kind of sneak in. Here's the deal. The text doesn't tell us. The text does not tell us exactly why. But I have a thought. It's not my thought. It's a thought that I'm borrowing from uh, Dr. D.A. Carson and his commentary on John. Some other other theologians uh, teach this as well. That in the Gospel of John, when you see the word night appearing, often associated with, with that imagery was something about spiritual darkness. There was a connection to, to spiritual darkness there. And so if you, if you come to the Gospel of John with that kind of as an understanding, then when it says that Nicodemus came at night, it meant something else was going on under the surface. It meant that with all of his religion and rituals and success, something was missing. There was something missing in, in, in Nicodemus' life. And one of the things, you know, I, I just want to kind of ask you, is, do you find that true of yourself? Did you show up here today and you feel like, you know, something, something is missing? See, Nicodemus had a day face. Successful, got it going on, I'm a leader of the people, you know, I'm good with God and, and everybody. Do you have a game face? Do you have that, that day face, but, but at night, you know something's just not right. There's kind of a low level of dissatisfaction, a low level of unsettledness. See, Nick came to Jesus at night. And look at what he said in verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Who's we? Who is in the room? Apparently just Nicodemus and Jesus. So why does he go all third person on Jesus? I mean, what, what was that about? Why, why did he, he kind of come in with this, this third person kind of thing? Well, I think it's because he's insecure. I think it's because of his brokenness. I think it's because people living in that environment won't come out and just say what's on their heart. They won't, won't just come out and say what's really going on. They kind of hide. And so what Nicodemus is kind of doing is propping himself up. You ever been around anybody that name drops? That's kind of what's going on. He's just kind of name dropping here. He's, he's hinting at how really connected he is. He's trusting in his status. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus cuts him off. I mean, literally, I, I, think, I think Jesus just stops him dead in his tracks and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I just, I, I think that's so interesting. You know, it, it says Jesus answered him. He didn't ask a question, but Jesus answered this unasked question that was going on in his heart because Jesus is not impressed. 
He's not impressed with this third person thing. He's not impressed with this name dropping. He, here's what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go, wow, you boys are supporting me? I've, I've been waiting on this. I was hoping you, your posse would just kind of come on and, and say I'm good. Jesus does not do that. Jesus is not looking for anything like that. Instead, he just cut right through all the political posturing. And basically what he says is, I am not a bit impressed. I'm not impressed with your religion. I'm not impressed with your status. I'm not wowed by your success. The fact that all those important people you hang out, it does nothing. Nicodemus responds to this. Watch what he does. He says, but how can a man be born again when he is old? He's, he's going to think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skirt this. I, I'm going I'm to try to go all philosophical on Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kick my, my doctorate in theology in. How can he again turn? And, and I think there's a hint of sarcasm. Just Joe think. I think it's a hint of sarcasm. He, he's just saying here, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is kind of like, Jesus, you, you got to be off your rocker, dude. You know, if the only way for me to get into heaven is to climb back in my mother's womb, first of all, Jesus, that's like gross. It's just, it's just gross. And I have it on good authority that my mom worked really hard to get me out. I know she don't want me back in. And uh, Don't you realize, Jesus, I'm like a grown man. You know, and on top of that, there's something kind of Freudian psychological that's just weird about that statement. You know, he just, he just kind of tries to, to kind of go after Jesus, skirt the issue a little bit. Watch what Jesus does. He comes back with that double blast of amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying, I'm talking about two different things here, Nicodemus, and you're not getting it. And so Jesus goes on to begin explaining. And he uses the next couple of verses to do that. And finally, in verse 9, we see kind of a shift in, in Nicodemus' attitude. In verse 9, he says, okay, how can, how can this be? How, how, how can this be? And then Jesus answered him. He said, are you a teacher of Israel? He's not letting him back up. He, he's not letting him off the, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. It's kind of like, this is the simplest. This is like, you know, kindergarten theology and you, you don't get it. This is basic stuff. And then Jesus busts out the double amen again. Truly, truly, I say to you, we. Now, who's Jesus talking about? He said, he's basically, here's what happened. He said, Nicodemus, I see your we and I raise you another we. Okay? Because here's the we I'm coming at you with. It's the God of all creation and the Spirit and the Son. You want to talk we, baby? We'll talk we all day. I'm coming at you, we. You know, the supernatural, supremely, just cosmic we. He's coming at him. He's just coming against that. And, and Jesus steps into where the kind of the level Nicodemus is and he says, I want you to see something. He says this, he says, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, this, this passage that we're dealing with, I believe points to three very important aspects of new birth 
And I want us to kind of walk through those in our time, the rest of our time together. Just kind of three dimensions of this new birth of which Jesus is speaking as Jesus describes it. And the first one is this. When you think about this new birth, when you think about being born again, this new birth requires a new authority. It requires, it, it requires that you change what you think about God. See, Nicodemus has objections, you know, to what Jesus is teaching with this born-again thing. It may be that it seems impossible, or maybe the concept is, is offensive. But Jesus basically comes to him and says, look, you need to decide who's going to be the authority here. You, you have got to decide who's going to determine what is truly true. And do you think for a minute, Nicodemus, that you are in any space to contradict what I'm telling you about these things? Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He, he basically says, Nicodemus, you ever been to heaven, boy? Have, have you been there? Then how, how do you know anything about it? How do you know anything about the things of God? So your opinions about God, no matter how lofty or well-trained or how many degrees you've got, they're, they're just opinions. That you're not speaking from authority and, and real experience. Jesus says, on the other hand, me, I'm speaking of what I know. I, I've been there. Let, let me see if I can illustrate this. I, I love this analogy. Let, let's say that you have, um, let's say that we were all born in this room. Okay? All of us in this room, we, we, we were all born here. And this, this room has no doors or windows, no way, way in or out. And this is, this is all we've ever known of our existence, right here in this room, okay? And, uh, and let's say at some point it, it, over the years in this room, we began thinking and wondering, wonder what's on the other side of that wall. And so we start coming up with all kinds of ideas on, on what's on the other side of the wall. And, you know, we may think, you know, some, some people will come up with a theory that there's nothing on the other side of the wall. It's just nothing. It's nothingness. And somebody else says, no, no, there, there's, it, it's like a, a different dimension that's kind of like this room, but it's kind of like bizarro world, okay? So anyway, we start debating what we don't know. We come up with all these theories of what it's going to be like, but we, we don't know. And, you know, just when we're at the heat of our great debate over what we don't really know, the, the, the roof cracks open. And this person just kind of comes down and hovers right about this height. And he starts telling us what it's like on the outside. Do you have to believe him? No, you don't have to. You can think he's here lying to you. You can think, you know, it's mass hysteria. We were all, you know, we've lost our minds, all of us together at one time. You can, you can think all kinds of things. But basically, he's the only person in the room who knows what it's like on the outside. So you have to come to a decision, not about what's on the outside, but about him. That's, that's what you got to decide is, what do I believe about this guy? Because if, if I believe one thing about him, then what he says has authority. 
But if I believe another thing about him, he has, he has no authority. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, I have been over there. I, I understand. And so your opinions really don't matter. The only opinion that you need to have to start with is, what do you believe uh, about me? What, what, do you, what do you say uh, about me? What do you think uh, about me? Because you can't contradict what I know and what I've seen and what I've experienced. See, that's the truth about Jesus. And, and all of us have to come to that place to answer the question that Jesus ultimately is asking. It's an authority question and it is this. Who do you say that I am? Am I who I say I am? Or am I going to be who you say I am? We ultimately, that's the question. Christianity, Christian faith, is rooted on the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is the son of God, then everything else that he teaches has to be truth, even if it contradicts what you think. Now, I think Nicodemus may have been the first biblical American. He is like, yeah, but... I know what your word says, but I've got my own opinion. I think you're a great man. I think you're this great influence. But some of what you say, I may even think you're the son of God, but some of your teaching's off. Some of it doesn't seem realistic. Some of it doesn't seem scientific. Some of it actually offends me personally. I just, I don't, I don't think that can be true. And that's what so many people do with Jesus. And what Jesus is saying when he says you must be born again, he's saying you have got to submit to a different authority. You can't, you can't be born again and, and, and continue to think that what you think is the way things are. Even if you think it's outdated or it, it doesn't line up with modern sophisticated thinking. Because the ultimate question is not about the teaching as much as it is about the teacher, the one who came. Now, you know, I said I believe everybody in this room has opinions about God. I, I'm just like you. How many of you have ever played that in your head? You probably never said it out loud to too many people, but you've played in your head, if I were God. You know, like, if I were God, I don't, I, I, I don't think I would let sincere people go to hell. In fact, if I were God, I don't think there, I, I wouldn't do permanent hell anyway. It'd be like, you know, temporary hell or something like that. After you're there a while, then, then, you, then you get out. Or, you know, if, if I were God, then I wouldn't, you know, let good people ever suffer. And because I'm Baptist, if I were God, everybody who ties 10%, you know, would, would uh, never lose their job or get sick. You know, we have these kind of things, but God doesn't operate that way. And so what I have to do is I have to get to the place where I decide, well, I believe who Jesus says he is, and if he is who he says he is, well, I come to understand that I must submit to what he says about God and life is the truth. Will I take that step? You know, will, will, I, will I, I, I go there? Let me ask you this. How many of you feel like you're a little smarter, just a little bit smarter than you were 10 years ago? 
there's some new information. You know something about relationships that maybe... When I got, when I got out of college, I thought I knew everything then. I look back now at that person and I think, you were such a stinking idiot. I look back to the guy I was 10 years ago and I think, you were a doofus, man. You, you're just, you, you just were. You're a bonehead. And so if, if I have, and you have learned something in 10 years, why in the world would we think that we could know everything now or at any time? No, no matter how, look, I, I know that some of you are far smarter than I am. But the truth is you cannot know everything. You can't have ultimate knowledge. Only God does. And if you believe that Jesus is God, then you've got to submit to his authority. And that's the first part of being born again. Second part is this. New birth requires new righteousness. A totally new kind of righteousness. Now, again, I think there are some people that, you know, think born again means something like switching to some kind of prudish moral code or voting Republican or wearing denim overalls or something. I don't know. You know, that you start doing some weird stuff. But this, this guy, Nicodemus, he's impeccable. He, he's already morally strict. He's already righteous. He's already successful. He's praised by everybody, you know. He's doing what you're supposed to do. And Jesus looks at him and says, not good enough. Sorry, not, not good enough. He says this to him. He says, that which is born of flesh, of sinful flesh, is still flesh. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. And what he's saying is you need a whole new kind of righteousness, a whole new kind of do-over. You don't get to heaven because you come up with some kind of really good do-it-yourself project. You don't, it's not incremental improvements along the way so, until you can discipline the flesh out of yourself. It's, it's not that. You need a whole new birth of righteousness, a whole new standing of righteousness before God. And so salvation, as Jesus explains it, is not just giving getting morally better. It's having this complete right standing that's made new before God. Because I credited my life to yours. I, 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 I did that. I took the sin that was yours on myself and I gave as a gift to you my righteousness. I lived the life that you were supposed to live and I died the death that you were condemned to die. And then I took my credit account with God and I gave it as a gift to you. Think of it like this. Think of it as this, this recent graduate from medical university. They, they've been 10 years getting to this point in their life in, in higher education. And they grad, I don't even know if they have this degree, but let's say they graduated with a degree in like biochemical, pharmaceutical engineering or something like that. Okay? Big long degree. Spent 10 years getting this thing and finally they get out and they get a job. They land their first job with Pfizer. It, 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 it's, it's a starting kind of salary job. And um, so it's not paying a lot. It has some potential maybe. And this person decides, I, I deserve to pamper myself now. I've worked so hard. So I want to go, go buy a house on the beach on Kiowa Island. I deserve it. So dude rolls up 
to the bank and he goes in and you know he, he says I need an application I want to take out a loan to buy a house and um, the guy says well you know how much money do you have in your account and he said well I don't have any and he said on top of that I got about $900,000 worth of college debt and the guy says well dude we can't we can't lend you money he said but I got a plan I'm going to pay you back $20 a month every month I've looked at my budget and I can handle $20 a month every month well you know what the bank's going to do He's going to say, you, you, you could never pay off your debt that way but then the owner of Pfizer walks in into the lending office right there and he, he says to the, the, this, this bank lender, here's what I want to do. I, want my, I bank here, so my account's here. I, I want you to take my savings account, my checking account, and I want you to switch it and put his name on it. And I want you to take his and put my name on it. We're just going to switch accounts. That, that guy, you know, he could buy, you know, a hundred houses on the beach in Kiowa. See, that's just a slight image of what Jesus has done for you. But because you can't, no matter how hard you try, your debt is too enormous. There's nothing you can do to ever pay it off. No matter how incremental or how often or how much you put back in, it will never, ever get paid. But that's what Jesus did. He credited your account with his righteousness. He didn't just add a little bit, you know, to the bill or anything. He paid it. He paid it all. So there are really only two ways to look at Jesus. You can either look at Jesus as a great man, good teacher, some principles to live by, or you look at him and say he is the savior of the world and you fall down on your face in his presence and said, Jesus, I'm toast if it's not for you. If, if I don't get a new righteousness, if I don't have a new birth of your righteousness, I realize that I'm going to die and bust hell wide open. I realize success doesn't matter. I realize religion doesn't matter. I've checked all the boxes. I realize it doesn't matter. I want you to see how scripture describes your righteousness. Okay? I'm just warning you this is gross. Okay? I know some of you are going to really hate me doing this before dinner, but sorry. Isaiah chapter 64, New King James says this, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. I want you to see how a new modern translation translates this because they actually get it right. All our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight. They accurate, you, you go back and you read any Hebrew theologian and they will tell you that that is exactly what Isaiah said. And, and I know it's gross and I know it offends our sensitivity and I know it is disgusting. But that is what the Bible says your righteousness looks like to God. And so if you're going to, you know, try to go before God and show God the evidence of your goodness, this is what God is saying to you it looks like to him. It looks gross. It looks disgusting. That's why Jesus says, you must be born again. Not as some little, you know, fixer-upper improvement project. Your, your sinful flesh will always be sinful flesh unless it is reborn into my spirit of righteousness. Your road 
that road only leads to a life apart from God forever. You must be born again. A new authority, a new righteousness. The third thing that this rebirth requires is new life within. You may remember in verse 6 it said, you know, it was a spiritual birth. Verse 8 tells us, it, it gives this kind of powerful analogy. It says this, it says, the wind blows where it wishes. This is Jesus describing this new birth. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying the Spirit is like wind. It's not coming, it, it can't be generated from inside of you. It's something that has to happen externally. It's not something you can work up or, or control. It's a power, a force that you can't handle. It comes as it, as it wills. It has its own life. See, Nicodemus shows up this day looking at Jesus as a teacher. That's what he said. We see you're a great teacher. We see the signs. And he shows up thinking that what Jesus could do for him is teach him how to know how to improve his existing life. And what Jesus is talking about is a whole new creation. Not a little makeover. A whole, new, a whole new creature that only comes from an encounter with the spirit of the living God. Basically what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you got to know God. And you don't know God. In, in all of your religion and all of your pursuits and all of your rituals and all of your law keeping, you forgot that it was about knowing God. Nick, that's what's missing, baby. You, you just don't know God. That's why Nicodemus showed up in the dark, feeling like he was still in the dark. Most of the commentators that I read that were writing about this said that when, when Nicodemus heard Jesus talking about the Spirit being like wind, immediately his mind would have rushed to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, there's this vision that God gives to the prophet Ezekiel and he shows him this valley of, of dried up bones of dead people. And in that, he, he tells, and remember, this is a preacher. He tells, he tells Ezekiel, I want you to preach to those dry bones. Boy, that was encouraging, you know. I want you to go preach to a bunch of dry, dead bones. But the Bible says that when Ezekiel obeys God, he starts, he starts preaching, he starts preaching, he starts preaching. And a wind blows through the valley and something begins to happen. Flesh begins to crawl up on these bones. It's kind of weird. You know, something out of a apocalyptic kind of flesh starts crawling up in these bones and then skin covers the, the flesh and the muscle and, and, and then they start to live again and this wind blows life into those dry bones. And that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus that day. It's got to be like that, Nicodemus. It's got to look like that. So here's the kind of personal question. Did you show up here this morning feeling dry? Feeling a little lifeless in your faith? Feeling disconnected and cut off from the power of the spirit of the living God? Because Jesus said that part of what being born again is, is experiencing life that way. It, it's, it's, it's a new breath of, of God in you. See, you don't need some, some teacher standing over you, condemning you, telling you how you can improve, you know, your life. 
You need a savior who can wash you. You need a savior who can fill you. You need a savior who can surge you with power. And so here's the big question today. Have you been born again? Second question is, are there people in your life that as you're thinking about this, you think they've never been born again? They think they have, but, but they've, they've never surrendered to another authority. They've never given themselves over to only the righteousness of Jesus. They're still trying to fix it themselves. They've never had this experience where the life of Christ is poured into them. Now, I'm not talking about some emotional experience. You know, there, there's nothing in the scripture in John 3 that tells us that, you know, the, the, the disciples were in the background doing... You know, there, there's not like a Wurlitzer organ music playing in the background. There, this, this was not an emotional experience. It's, it wasn't swapping some moral code going on. It was just coming to face to face with Jesus. It's not checking some box, going to some class. Nicodemus had done all of that over all of his life. And Jesus looked at him and said, you've got to be born again, man. It's not about attendance. It's not about, it's not about those kinds of things. It's not, I'm not just asking you, Nicodemus, do you believe in God? The Bible says the de Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. They tremble. They, they, they quake at the name of Jesus. He says, I'm asking you, have you been born again? Have you acknowledged that there's only one source of authority in your life and it's Jesus and the word that he inspired called the Bible? One authority. Have you surrendered your opinions to that? Have you given up all hope that somehow you're going to get good enough and you just started totally falling at the feet of Jesus saying, Jesus, it's, it's all about you. It's not about me. It's nothing that I can do. Has Jesus done that kind of work in your soul? Or, or do you just believe facts about him? Just believe that he exists, that he was a good guy. You know, I've heard most of my life that most people will miss heaven by 18 inches. From head to heart. Have you been born again? Because you must. And the Bible says you can now. Let's pray. Lord God, we come right now in Jesus' powerful name. And we come face to face with what you have said to us that we must be born again. And Lord, when I think about when I think about this, this must, when I think about a new birth requiring a new authority, a new birth requiring a righteousness that I can't manufacture, a new birth requiring your spirit blowing life in me. And the only thing that brings that about is, is my total surrender to you. Have you surrendered 
it all to Jesus. All of it. Your vocation, your thinking, your opinions, how you think you can be made right with. Have you surrendered all of that to just Jesus and Jesus alone? Because that's what it means to be born again. Maybe you're here today and you, you know beyond a doubt that you've surrendered. That Jesus is your authority. His word stands in authority over your life. You submit to it. And maybe you, you know that you have, you have received his righteousness. He has credited your account and his spirit is alive in you. But there are people that God has brought to mind today who he wants you to begin praying for and, and, and lovingly asking as he pr- gives you an opportunity. Have, have you been born again? Do you have life in the spirit? Are you surrendering to the Lord? It's all about that surrender. And so Jesus, we come right now in this moment knowing that we have to surrender ourselves again to you to experience all the privilege of being born again. Some of us have allowed other thoughts of this world to creep in and begin to try to take authority. And so God, we come back because we want to live in the full measure of our status of being born again, the freedom of it. So we come back to you. We come back and surrender. We come back and surrender our, our, our resources, our finances, all of our life to you, our relationships. And we come knowing that surrender means that the only place that we can stand is in you alone, Jesus, standing in your love. And so that's what we come to do now. We come to worship you through giving. We come to worship you in song. We come giving our hearts once again to you, saying to you and you alone, Jesus, thank you for life in you. If you're here today and you, you still want to talk about what it means to be born again, I'll, I'll stay after the service. But right now, we want to take some time to worship. Worship Jesus who gives you his righteousness. Worship Jesus who who wants to be your sole source of authority. Worship Jesus who gives you life within through the Spirit. We come now to just stand in your love, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.